0: Welcome to Communicate Like You Give a Damn, the podcast. Our guests share their stories and approaches to embedding diversity, equity, and inclusion in communications because, I mean, let's be honest, we know the power of language. And language leads to behavior. So thank you. Thank you for joining us in leveling up your communications. I'm your host, Kim Clark. And DEI Communications, it's kind of my thing. So let's get into it. Let's learn more about how to communicate like you give a damn. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Part two with Jason Patton. Now, he uh, talked a lot about his first, in our first episode with Jason, uh, we covered his book talking about well, actually, Jason, why don't you introduce yourself and the book and then I'll pick it up from there.
1: Okay, sure. Uh, my name is Jason Patton. I'm the founder and principal of JP Global Lead LLC and, um, and co-founder of Bridge Labs. The book that I wrote is called Humanly Possible, A New Model of Leadership for a More Inclusive World. And in the book, I share a number of stories around mm-hmm quote-unquote good leadership and bad leadership and pull out specific actions that leaders can uh, put into place every single day to make the workplace more inclusive
0: because there's a real need for leadership right now jason (laughs) a real need for genuine actual leadership and leadership doesn't look like duck and cover you know, it, it, it's really, it's, it's, it is speaking out. It is speaking up from a thoughtful way. We are recording this. We seem, we, you know, we were talking about this before we started recording. It's like we have to stop meeting like this because when we recorded episode one, it was right on the day that the SCOTUS decision around affirmative action came out. Mm-hmm. And now we're recording part two. In the midst of a uh, potential impending ground invasion of Gaza by the Israeli uh, Defense Force. So things are heavy and needing leaders right now to actually be leaders um, and having that leadership character show and whether leader is in your title or not. Uh, that's what I find interesting in these times is that we really get to see what people are made of and who they really are and what they're able to do and what their capabilities are. And there's whole populations and communities that aren't able to function at a full capacity right now. And we need to acknowledge that as leaders. Is there anything that you wanna uh, share uh, before we get started on uh, more of our conversation?
1: I don't know that I have anything to add beyond what you said just so beautifully there, Kim. Um, I mean, I guess, I guess it's just one, one of the, one of the things that I think we're going to end up talking about is, um, the need to be precise with language. And I suppose that that's, I mean, I don't, I don't wanna start over intellectualizing this. Um, I mean, we, we do need to you know, uh, use our, our neocortex. So, I mean, there is, there is a space here to, to analyze um, and we'll get into that a, a little bit later. Um, I think that the, I'm just thinking of this from a brain management perspective, that what's happening right now is so incredibly upsetting to so many different people and to so many different populations of people that we're all a little bit amygdala hijacked or a lot amygdala hijacked right now. Um, And I've just been noticing, you know, forums on LinkedIn that are normally really positive, civil, uh, respectful, have devolved very quickly into extremely Mm. negative uh, rhetoric um, that can really do Long-term harm, and so I suppose one of one of the one of one of, one of one of one of the things I'm trying to do in my own use of language is just when in doubt. I mean, it's tricky, right? Because silence is not called for right now, and mm-hmm. at the same time, we really do need to be careful with what we say. And so, I guess I guess maybe I'll just name that tension um, mm-hmm. as something that I think everyone with a public presence is dealing with and especially communicators um, since language is what it's all about.
0: And I was sharing with Jason. Absolutely. Um, That I've been on a number of calls with communicators uh, behind the scenes to help them navigate their messaging, Uh, primarily internally, because the client, the kinds of clients that I've been talking to don't necessarily have core capability for meaningful, uh, positioning on an external standpoint, um, but there is some uh, kinds of messaging that is emerging that is applicable to people who don't have a direct uh, core capability access to making a difference um, that's emerging uh, through link- my LinkedIn posts, etc., and the conversations. And that's one of the bonuses. When you work with me, it's not just this one project. I'm going to stay in touch with you, especially during crisis situations. And I know, Jason, you provide a lot of support for your For your clients as well uh, because you work directly with leaders and helping them with that mindset given that one of the we we covered so much good stuff in that first part jason we talked about bridging and communication strategies and systems (laughs) and structures uh, just so much good stuff and, and a lot of what you cover in the book. So again, humanly possible, please order your copy. I have mine sitting behind me over here. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, of course. <laughs> and um, uh, and when we were getting towards the end of the conversation, I'm like, mm, we, I can't let him go. I, I, need, I need more. I want more. You have a PhD in linguistics. And I, I'm so curious because you shared in part one, like the vast amount of traveling and exposure to increase cult- cultural competency um, and, and how you've taken that into all of the different roles that you've had at different academic institutions uh, and the impact you've had on different audiences, whether it's leaders or students and um and and other colleagues and things that you've learned from mistakes that you've made which we need to talk more about not your mistakes jason but uh, <laughs> all of our all of us need to be talking more about the mistakes that we make um and including myself uh but this phd in linguistics first of all what is linguistics and what what gave you that impetus to pursue a phd in this linguistics study,
1: area of study? <laughs> what is linguistics? It's a great question. I'll let me, let me, let me challenge myself to give a very brief definition, I guess. Um, the way that I see linguistics, you, you'll get different answers depending on who you ask and what, what the field should, should be studying is also, there's a lot of disagreement about that as well. I'll tell you, my take on it is it's a social science for uh, understanding the workings of this phenomenon called language. So I think, Mm. I actually think of it as a kind of, it's a social science, but it's also a natural science because we belong Mm. to the animal kingdom. And this is a kind, this is a form of animal behavior. Um, What's different about it is, you know, we're studying ourselves, uh, but I think that's all the more reason that it's valuable, that that there's a lot of potential in the field because um, we tend to view our own behaviors in the least objective way. So it's trying to bring some kind of, some form of scientific objectivity to this really important form of behavior. And that goes everywhere from how do we make the sounds that we make, speech sounds, uh, how do those sounds pattern into systems? How do words get built? How do sentences get formed? How does uh, meaning, what is meaning? how is that connected to broader cultural patterns? and when I say there 's disagreement about what linguistics is 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 rightfully supposed to study there's a, a lot of folks, especially in the united states who 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 say that we 're not supposed to talk about any of that fuzzy cultural stuff that we should be applying rigorous mathematical yeah. analysis to the structure of sentences, which I personally don 't find that interesting yeah. um, and I also think that like at least in terms of what I find interesting and helpful about the study of language doesn 't include that well i shouldn't say that. That that's like a tiny little bit that it is, you know, to me anyway, uh, a little bit interesting. But like, I love all of the the stuff, <laughs> um, and then and then also power and power is going to be a theme once again that that comes comes in. But but language is power in a lot of ways too, which which um, I'm happy to get into more as as we go on. But and then in terms of why I got in, should I pause there for a little bit, or should I just go right into why I decided to study? Yeah, Aniston? go ahead. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I graduated. My undergraduate degree was in East Asian Studies, uh, and that was for me. That was Chinese language and uh, and history. Uh, when I went to China for the first time in 1991, I made every mistake you could possibly make. Um, not interculturally competent at all. Um, and I, there was two things. That was one thing that happened. Another thing that happened was I got really excited about. I wanted to have an impact, and I specifically wanted to have an impact on. China's economic development. So I thought, hey, I'll go back to school and I'll get an economics PhD. Well, those doors were pretty much closed to me because I, I didn't even have an economics course as an undergrad, let alone, uh, let alone an economics major. So there was I, but I, I knew I wanted to go on and study something and I wasn't sure what it was. I also had always been interested in languages since I'd taken my first since the first day of German class my freshman year in high school. Uh, And so language had been a fascinating topic to me. And and at this point I had also had a couple years of Mandarin. And once I was done with my first year uh, in China, my Mandarin was pretty good. So I read this book. It came across, I don't even remember how I got introduced to it, but it was called The Chinese Language Fact and Fantasy by John DeFrancis. And there are so many myths around how the Chinese language works, how Chinese characters work, the, the writing system. And a lot of these myths are based on kind of exoticization of China. And this book just cut through all of that with this really clear scientific approach, just debunked all of these myths. And this fellow was a linguist. And I thought, oh, there's a field out there called linguistics with all of these amazing tools for looking at language. Maybe I'll check that out. And so I took a year uh, at Stanford to do a master's also in East Asian studies, but the, that program was designed to help students. One of one of the purposes of the program was to help students pick a discipline if they wanted to go on and get a PhD. And so I got to know some of the linguists at Stanford. I got to know some of the linguists up at UC Berkeley. I applied to both schools. Berkeley gave me more money. <laughs> and that's just, so that's how I ended up there. I had no idea how lucky <laughs> I was to actually land at Berkeley where there are so many different approaches to the study of language and the view of what Mm -hmm. linguistics can and should be is really, 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 really broad. But that's how I got into it. And um, as I went on through that program, I just fell more and more in love with the discipline and got more and more excited about what we could do with the tools of the trade. So I'll stop there and and see how we're doing.
0: Well, then translating that, you know, you went through a program. You did a dissertation, mm-hmm. uh, and so there was must must have been some sort of area that really, really caught your uh, mind and, and your attention and your energy. And it, and I'm curious about some of the aspects of the program that you can remember that you still use to this day, especially as you continue. Uh, in, in working with leaders and moving leadership qualities and, and um, the language of leadership. It, it's, it's gonna, this is going to be fun for me to watch you figure out, <laughs> you know, how to apply it and stuff. But what are the kinds of things that from that program that, that still influence you today uh, and that can uh, show up in your work?
1: two thoughts. The first thought is broadly speaking, the relationship between language and culture, which really is kind of now, uh, you know, I, I say when I was a grad student, I was thinking in, about culture, mostly in, in international terms. But really, it's the li- connection between language and systems. So shared, shared systems of um, behaviors and values, which is kind of broadly how I think of culture, shared systems of behaviors and values. Uh, you, the, the language is completely inseparable. It is both influenced and you're shaped by and also shapes the systems. And uh, my, just briefly, you know, the, the, the topic that really caught my, I didn't know what I wanted to write a dissertation about. It took me a long time to figure it out. And then when I finally did, I just, it was just extremely fun because uh, the topic that I took on was uh, human rights, human rights. That's an English language term and yeah. the reason that i took this on was you know you have your cocktail party conversation which i've never been very good at but people and a frequent reaction that people would have when i told them that i had lived in china and that i was studying china and chinese language is like oh yeah they've got like real human rights problems don't they They didn't really believe in human rights over there and it always kind of struck me as um i didn't really know how to respond to that um I couldn't really address it without getting, I, I, I just didn't know that much about it. And so I decided I wanted to look into it more in my dissertation and look at like, well, how, how do people from the United States talk and think about human rights? And then con- how how do people from mainland China think and talk about human rights? And it's tricky from the outset. And this is this actually, so I said there were two thoughts. One is language and culture, and then there's this other one. They're both closely related because uh, one of the resounding themes is we have to be really, really careful about how slippery language can be. And what I mean by that is uh, I say human rights and that, that that's, uh, that's a, what we call form. That is there's a sound, there's a string of sound, human rights, that then is connected in my mind, in your mind, to a whole set of uh, what are called cultural models that have to do with a lot of stuff like about what it means to be a human and to live a human life. When we say something like, so so so, going back to high school, I remember a speech by then president Ronald Reagan, where he said, the experts tell me or something like this, that there's, that there's no word for freedom in Russian. This is at the height of the Cold War. Mm. And I thought, well, what does that even mean? This is my high school self like what what does that even mean? There's no word in Russian for freedom. And if you really start to unpack that, uh, there, there's a whole lot there's a whole lot to unpack. I'll, I'll, the power is there's a piece a power piece there that I'll come back to. Uh, but from a kind of nerdy linguistics perspective, what it points out is that really when you think about it, there's really no word in any language for that word in the in the source language so you could you could you could actually argue there's no word in chinese for cup cup and the reason i picked that example is is there's an activity that i have led many times in a class that i've taught and i call it whose cup of tea and what i do is i show a series of images about 20 images of objects that we might call cup glass maybe even bottle in english and i asked the students who in that i taught this course at uc berkeley and there were students whose first language many different first languages and i would ask them to say out loud what they would call it in their first language and before i even got to the second or third slide we had all of these like very very different mappings of what these objects were no no that's definitely a blah That's definitely not a blah, whereas they both might be called a cup or a glass in English. Um, And I did this just to kind of call forth, to get the students to decenter the the students a little bit and have them thinking, oh gosh, you know, language is, 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 is connected to meaning. The form, the sounds are connected to meaning in a lot of really complex and overlapping ways. So if that's true of something like cup, imagine what it's like for a term like human rights. So what I was trying to do in the yes. dissertation was 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 um, so so there's a, there is a term in mandarin that is the n- nearest equivalent of human rights is, is renchuan. But of course renchuan is going to be connected to a different set of cultural models in a chinese cultural context than the term human rights in a, in a, a english and specifically us american english kind of a context as well. So that's what my dissertation was fundamentally about. And to get back to your question about sort of what has stuck with me and what do I still use? I mean, that's, that, that's, it's that slipperiness of language and the connection of language to broader systems that has has been the, the through line through all of that. And then just quickly on power. And to Reagan's claim that there's no word in Russian for freedom. Um, so one way to disparage another group of humans is to say that they lack a certain attribute. It can be a code the deficit for, for mm-hmm. what you say, Kim. Sorry, the
0: deficit showing deficits.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like uh, we are fully formed, one hundred percent human. They are somehow not fully formed. They are lacking something, and the the code is something less than human. I believe that that is what is actually happening in our minds. Even that's why I say it's code, right? It's a like dog whistle. But that's what it means. And uh, we wouldn't similarly want to say, if we go back to the My Cup of Tea activity, we wouldn't want to say, Chinese doesn't have a word for cup. <laughs> that seems really silly. Of course it has a word for cup. <laughs> but it doesn't also at the same time. But then we could also say, so beidze is the nearest equivalent, Mandarin equivalent for cup. We could just as easily say that English doesn't have a word for beidze. But that, the, the, that deficit frame doesn't help us at all. What we want to do is understand the systems on their own terms, these, these linguistic and cultural systems. We want to understand them on their own terms, so that whatever communication event we are participating in, we do so as effectively as possible. I'm, stop, I'm stopping I, because I feel like I've been talking for I, a long
0: time. <laughs> <laughs> that was really profound. That that the speaker and this this ties into supremacy. So what I'm hearing is language supremacy, where we center U.S. English mm-hmm. and and then force other languages compare it to how we identify something mm-hmm. because we're right. And it, to your point, we're complete. We're full humans, and anything less than mm-hmm. is has a less value, has a lower value, and it's lacking. Which the I, disability community has been trying to get us to see forever because programs and language and language leads to behavior, which looks like programs, is a deficit-based model. That's where my comment was coming from, because I'm used to that and fighting that with my uh, autistic son, for example.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, another example is a couple decades ago, a little more than a two decades ago, when there was a, a, a This is one of the times linguistics kind of made it out into the zeitgeist, uh, African-American vernacular English. And there was this question that was posed. It's just such a red herring, like, is it a language or a dialect? Um, And that's when all the linguists that I knew in the United States wanted to, that that question's not helpful, right? but but you know when you when you had you had people saying you know we've 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 got aave is essentially not a legitimate or full language it was completely deficit-based um and and some you know and and some of those people were linguists um in fact i I, I won't name this particular linguist He's, he's been out there in public saying a lot of terrible things for two decades um but most linguists that i knew when you, just this question of what is a, a fully developed language? It's not even part of the conversation. That's another thing that I appreciate about the field of linguistics um, was that that the field takes it as a given that no language is any more fully developed than any other language. Um, and that to me, just as a, as, a, as a similar to anthropology, you know, that no culture is more well developed than any other culture. And so what's one thing I appreciate about it is the discipline. That's like, that's a foundational understanding. Um, Anyway, so just, just to echo your, your point um, about, and your experiences that uh, with the disability community that, that we also had this example with race as well, a little more than two decades ago.
0: Mm -hmm. And I'm sure LGBTQ plus, and um, you know, that's, that's where we get a lot of, a lot of the separation is using language that there is a, a fully formed way of living life. Mm-hmm. And if you're missing any of these out of the definition of a fully formed U.S. Uh, defined human life, then there's a, a, a lesser value. You are lacking this. Yeah. Um, it- you're lacking heterosexuality in order for, you know, for procreation. You're lacking, um, you know, whiteness, uh, you know, and, and you're lacking, mas- you know, being a man, you know, if you're a woman, that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. that language, and I'm just going to hit this again, language leading to behavior. I really hear this connection that you're making here that I'm, it's going to take me a minute to really process through it. This is really profound.
1: Um. There's one other piece to it that I'd like to add if I could. Please. Um, and this is something that I talk about in the, in the book a little bit. And this is, this is um, so there's a whole, there's a whole, so there's linguistics. The, the field that I was trained in is called cognitive linguistics. And one of the, one of the tenets of cognitive linguistics is, uh, is that language is deeply connected to many other aspects of human behavior. And then within cognitive linguistics, there's a strand of research called prototype theory. And it's all about this kind of stuff where the the human mind Mm -hmm. takes mental shortcuts. This is how we conserve energy because the brain is an energy hog. And so we have what are called cognitive reference points. And so we, some of these cognitive, these reference points are called prototypes. And then we understand entire categories based on this. Now we take a really benign example I talk about this in the book. Chair, what is a chair? If I said, and, and, and then we can bring in. This is something that my um, one of my mentors, George Lakoff, and one of the founders of cognitive linguistics, he writes about this in his book "Women, Fire, and Dangerous Things," uh, which the, t- the title of that book is brilliant. There's a whole other. There's a whole conversation yeah, around Yeah, a lot is coming of, to like,
0: mind. That's yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Um,
1: And, and women, fire, and
0: dangerous.
1: Yeah, and, 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 and so, th- I, if you're interested, we can go into that. It's a fascinating, the reason he chose that title, but, um, but in that book, he introduces what he calls the butt test, B-U-T, uh, and it's a, it's a really powerful and extremely simple way to get at our unconscious biases. So sticking with objects, if I say to you, it's a chair, but it has four legs, probably a little weird, right? Because we expect chairs to have four legs. If I say to you, it's a chair, but it's a beanbag, that sounds okay, because it's like, we don't expect, I mean, we have a thing called a beanbag chair, right? But it's not a prototypical chair. When we think about chairs generically, we don't think about, we're less likely to think about beanbags than we are about something with, you know, four legs and a back. Um, here's the thing, we, we do it with human beings too. We have prototypes, and this is what it gets into, right? So, we, you know, in, in, um, current dominant culture in the United States, cisgender, heterosexual, able-bodied white men, constitute a prototype. And that's the standard against which other forms of humanity are judged. And getting back to this whole piece about lacking, found to be lacking and this is always happening in our minds moment to moment and it comes out in the things that we say and when i'm um i believe the chapter in the book where i get into this is where i focus in on gender um and i'm talking about uh when i had i had drawn attention in a negative way to what i the behavior on the part of of a woman colleague who was a direct report of mine i i i said you know i, I didn't really like how you were in that class I, you seemed a, a bit argumentative i said that to her and she called me out on it and she said did you really mean to use that word and would you think you'd use the same word with a male colleague with a with a man um and i was just like holy crap of course not i would not have and you that's absolute it's clearly gender bias was in action um and so i I, from that story i go into this analysis using the butt test and it can be a little bit uncomfortable so we have these stereotypical you know um, womanly attributes like warmth approachability um and if we ask ourselves to assess using the butt test how natural a sentence sounds we can, we can get at this very quickly. So he's a man, but he's warm and approachable. Based on gender stereotypes, probably sounds more natural than she's a woman, but she's warm and approachable. So the, the but, what that does for us is it, it's a, it's a, it's con- what's coming after it is contrary to expectations So we can get very quickly at what those expectations are, unconscious bias, if we're honest with ourselves in our introspection about how those sentences sound to us. So the butt test, I think, is an incredibly powerful technique to use to unearth these unconscious biases and where we might find um, also unearth this whole notion of lacking if you don't measure up to whatever this prototype is. Where we're actually doing that in our moment-to-moment thinking and our moment-to-moment speaking, and then associated behaviors, as well. Like, for example, um, with the same employee, I had when I when I did her initial performance review, uh, I, had, I said a lot of nice things, um, and she also pointed out that I really didn't talk that much about her technical expertise. That I had mostly highlighted interpersonal attributes. It's like, geez. <laughs> like, so that, that's, that's an example of a behavior in the world that has impact, could very much have impact on this person's professional future, completely unconscious, right? but, but that's it's happening in my mind because of the systems that I have participated in and have benefited from and continue to benefit from.
0: You're reminding me of an exercise that I do sometimes with clients. I'm going to looking to see if I can find it. Yep, here it is. It's a quote, a real quote that I pulled from um, a news article. This is from a few years ago when Justice Ginsburg was still serving. Chief Justice John Roberts called Ginsburg a rock star and said that although she had a soft voice, when she spoke, people listened. <laughs> uh, that's that's ridiculed with, I mean, that's just full of... Of, of gender bias, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, to help you make your point and how it can show up. So how does this relate to what we were talking about last time around systems? How much of it is systems that you're actually uh, replaying when you said these things during performance reviews or making the comment about being argumentative? How much of that is is a reiteration or reaffirmation or a demonstration of systems versus you and your intent.
1: I mean the short the short answer that pops pops to mind when you ask me that question is that it's it's like all systems. I mean, I'm we can't we can't detach ourselves from the systems that we are functioning inside of, um, and and the 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 work that systems are doing in the background moment to moment in our minds and in our words and in our deeds, uh, is overwhelmingly unconscious. It's just that that's what defines what's normal. And so that's why it's so important that we, that we build and flex the skill of bringing what's unconscious into conscious awareness without that we don't we don't have a hope we have no chance of changing anything with it we at least have a chance and so i would say that I, I mean i was and i've i've expressed this to this colleague many times how grateful i am to her for having the courage i was her boss right so there's this additional power dynamic threat aspect and in both of those instances she had the courage to Uh, I guess we, 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 I would say, call me in because it was really done with love. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And she felt safe enough, so you established a a, a level of trust with her. She felt safe mm -hmm. in um, calling you in.
1: Yeah. Uh, And she's she's also a very courageous person. Um, And yes, uh, I, I I just it's it's learning that I wouldn't have had the opportunity to to, to experience had it not been for, for her courage. Um, my, my point being, I'm functioning inside of the same systems as everybody else. I'm also doing it from my position of extreme privilege. Um, it's all the more important that I be paying attention because I if I'm not, I'm, I'm going to continue to do harm in ways that people who have less privilege than I do might be doing to a lesser extent than me Um, it's also because of the nature of privilege that likes to hide in the shadows i'm less likely to be aware of how my privilege is operating my and and, you know we could and in the book i I use power as shorthand for both privilege and also organizational authority as well so power likes to hide in the shadows Um, uh, power of all different kinds and One of my goals is to continually be as grateful as I can for the learning opportunities that I have because they don't they don't come naturally. And um, so to get back to your question about systems, uh, I I don't I don't want to try to say how much like it's it's all systems on some level and. We need to see as how we as individuals are functioning inside of systems, the impact of the actions that we're taking, the things that we're saying, and the other actions that we're taking inside of those systems so that we can constantly hone our awareness, like build out and develop our awareness and and hone it, and also have consciously choose our words and our deeds in ways that counter those systems.
0: Uh, you're reminding me of a lecture that I saw uh, given by Willie James Jennings. Are you familiar with him? I am not. He is the okay. He is the author of the Christian Imagination, uh, uh, theology, and the origins of race. And he did a lecture, and he was talking about ownership and possession and the language around that, leading to behavior. He never said it that way, but that's what I heard. <laughs> And one of the things he said, kind of to kind of cap what I hear you just now sharing, he said, what story are you a part of? Like you're talking about systems, we're a part of systems. And so the way he framed it as what story are you a part of? What story are you in and who is it serving? And so that brings, let's, let's bring it into, like, really serving our audience here as communicators, the kind of language that we need to be more consciously aware of, to your point. Uh, and, and recognize that we are part of systems, all kinds of systems that actually benefit off of performative communications. But it may feel good in the moment, but from a long-term standpoint and setting up, you know, habitual behaviors, mm you know, and we're, and we're feeling that if we weren't able to follow through three years ago in the summer of 2020, we're recording this in the fall of 2023, um, you know, that we might have said the right thing then, but we didn't follow through. And now we're 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 paying some prices for it in a variety of ways you know, that um, it's going to last for a little bit until we really have some leadership, make some bold moves, but also communicators, supporting leaders and communicators within their areas of control, uh, making some bold moves that in using language, uh, that is really needed right now, but we, the, but we really need to be more consciously aware. I mean, it really comes down to that. So as a, as a linguistic guy and, <laughs> and as a guy who's been doing a whole lot of personal development, as well as helping others in their professional development, um, what, And this tails off of where we left off in part one in our conversation, where you were talking about preferences, just the term preferences and how it's weaponized for division. And it becomes a talking point to reinforce status quo. And so now I'm curious, you got me wondering, okay, there's preferences. What other kinds of terms out there do we need to catch ourselves from not reiterating in a context that's actually counter to our intent um, that we need to be more consciously aware of what we hear it from leaders, when we hear it from ourselves, when we write it in our, in our communications. What are some other terms and phrases that we need to like, you know, kind of like pause and think through? Like, how am I framing this term? Preferences? Who is it benefiting? What am I, you know, what am I, what am I saying here um, that may be driving some division, misinformation, uh, adding to the performative rhetoric uh, that is actually keeping the status quo? So. What are, do you have some uh, examples that we can be be more aware of? And by no means an exhaustive list, of course, but it gives us something to, to start with.
1: Well, I'll start with two kind of broad sort of cat- categories, like types of things to listen for. And then I also have some thoughts about some very specific terms and phrases. So on the, um, on the general side of things, uh, following up on the whole butt test piece and prototypes mm-hmm. and all of that, uh, I think it's helpful to the extent that we're paying attention to when and how. I mean, the thing is, it's difficult because we're doing it every moment, right? So, but mm-hmm. when we when we are speaking in potentially harmful ways that that further marginalize people who are already marginalized based on this idea that in the using United States. So I, the 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 way that things the systems prevalent in the United States cisgender heterosexual able-bodied white men are unconsciously thought of as some kind of a universal standard of what a human is and should be. So mindfulness of that, and when we are speaking and acting in ways that uphold that, uh, it's going to it's going to be helpful for folks to do this. Just just as uh, it was helpful when my colleague called me in on those two examples that I gave, right? that I was speaking and acting in a way that upheld that dominant, harmful s- set of systems. So keep an ear out and an eye out for language that others people in that way, and others, entire groups of people in that way. Uh, the other piece is and we haven't gotten into this in any amount of detail. We did talk about it last time, but the, you know, the research that I did around affirmative action back in the 1990s was based on another strand of research in cognitive linguistics, which was around metaphor. And there's a, whole, there's a whole world around that, but just fundamentally metaphor in the field of cognitive linguistics is not primarily linguistic, it's conceptual. We think about something that's more abstract and difficult to get our hands around in terms of something that's much more concrete and easily, easily understood. We think about it that way and then we also talk about it that way, um, but it's not just linguistic, it's primarily conceptual and becoming ever more aware of how we are thinking and speaking based on metaphors can be helpful too because, and and, and the example in the, in, in the affirmative action stuff was, the fact that in the United States, we we have this incredibly deeply ingrained notion that life's just one big athletic competition. Like we, we're in, in a race, we're in a football game, we're in a baseball game, we're, we're, whatever it is, life's just one big athletic competition. And once you've restricted yourself to thinking in those terms, opposition to affirmative action falls directly out of that, because you can't... If I get four strikes in baseball <laughs> where somebody else gets three strikes, that's by definition wrong. We have to play by the same rules. so this, so so people say that, well, then how could you how could you admit somebody to a university if they don't have the highest test scores? Um, inside of that incredibly narrowly circumscribed world of athletic competition, it doesn't make sense. But this whole, like this whole world out, like the actual world is so much more complex than that. So having to the extent that we can become aware of how we are reasoning and thinking and speaking and acting in terms of metaphors is also really, really helpful and difficult. Right. Because because we're all embedded in it. And it's very hard to see when we're embedded in it. And so so, is that where
0: we're getting the the idea of like a win and lose and you're taking things from me?
1: Absolutely, because one, one aspect of the whole athletic competition piece is that it is, by definition, zero-sum and scarcity-based. If we, we can't both win, right? We can't. That's like, you know. If, Not if you even win, in soccer if, with a one-on-one tie at the championship
0: game. So <laughs> right. we, have we, we have to decide yeah, a winner. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah, okay. I, I regularly do, do the New York Times crossword Monday through Friday, and what, a clue the other day is said "impossible outcome in a World Cup final," and it was a tie. was the, <laughs> was the, was the, was the actual <laughs> answer there. Uh, but yeah, we we um we have to have winners, and when you have winners, you have losers, and it also just makes it super easy to write off the marginalization and suffering of a oh, well, you know, someone's got to lose. It's convenient. So that not, That's not me.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to make sure that I position myself. So that it is not me. So taking this narrow view of rules mm-hmm. from athletic competition, and then seeing the rest of the world, trying to fit into that framework is creating this scarcity mindset of zero sum game, winners, losers, and I'm going to make sure that I'm going to use language and take positions And take actions to make sure that I'm the one that's still standing, that I still get a chair in the game of musical chairs.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I said, one friendly amendment I would say is is creating and also reinforcing, right? There's plenty of other stuff out there that reinforce, and it's part of global capitalism too. The scarcity mindset is absolutely central. So it helps to reinforce that too.
0: So there is a profound, I can't even, you probably have more words in your vocabulary that better describes this, but profound paradigm shift and understanding the source of why someone may not feel included or want to be included or is pushing back on just DEI in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is very interesting. You're connecting a lot of dots for me here. <laughs> Good. Because <laughs> <laughs> language leads to behavior. You're talking about language and I'm, we're seeing it in the behavior. Yeah. So here's one more question for you. So what do we need to remember as communicators, um, you know, from your studies and your your lived experience and your professional experience around what do we need to remember, you know, around like roots of language, just words, how language helps us be critical thinkers Mm -hmm. and help us to be stronger, more critical communicators as well.
1: Um, I do have some thoughts on that. I did want to make good on a promise I made a little bit ago that I had also some, so those are the, I I mentioned, you know, the whole butt test prototype thing and the metaphor thing is sort of general frames to bear in mind with communication. Mm -hmm. And then I said, I also had some specific phrases to watch out for. Do you still want me to do that, or should I just go to the...
0: Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Thank you.
1: Okay. Yeah, no problem. It's, and it's, it's, um, these, I have to admit, this is not something that I've done a lot of research on. It's really just from my own experience, um, language that I don't find helpful and can actually obscure and harm things. And these are phrases like, we take X seriously. anyone can say that, right? Easy to say. Or we care deeply about all those affected by why, whatever that is, right? Um, Pretty typical kinds of phrases you'll see in, in performative communications. Mm -hmm. So those are just Mm -hmm. a couple of phrases. Like whenever I see those, my, my hackles go up and I'm just like, (laughs) and, and it ties back to, you know, when part, part one, when you and I were met the, the first time for, on this podcast, and you asked me, you know, what does it mean to communicate? Like you'd give a damn. And I, I said, well, it's kind of, it's actually less the communication and more the action. So to me, it's performative. We assume that it's performative, unfortunately, because of the track record. We assume that language is performative unless it's backed up by sustained mm. action over time. I'd say in most it's cases, weird. we, sh- we <laughs> should assume that corporate communications on social issues are performative unless they can prove to us otherwise by consistently being backed up by meaningful action over time. Um, And then in addition to that, I also, and this is, I'm kind of flying by the seat of my pants on this one because I haven't actually been in conversation about this with folks, Um, but at least in terms of how I try to communicate about, so words like offensive and insensitive, the words that show up a lot when we're talking Mm -hmm. about DEI with folks, um, I don't know that those are extremely helpful terms to use. Yes, certain things that we say do offend people and are insensitive. And at the same time, I think harmful really cuts directly to what it is that we're talking about. And what we want to to we, we want people to understand is it, it directly makes the connection that words are not neutral. Words are not objective. They have actual physical force in the world and that that force is often broadly harm. If we use insensitive or offensive, I think we're sort of caving to a framing that doesn't necessarily have to do with harm. If I'm insensitive to you or if I offend you somehow, it just becomes really easy to dismiss. It doesn't necessarily mean that I've actually harmed you. I've caused you to maybe experience something a little bit mentally or emotionally unpleasant and it becomes very easy to shrug off I think harm is less easy to shrug off.
0: And uh, I think the word offensive yeah. actually triggers a defensive, you know, mm. posture. So it, it increase it, it encourages this binary. Yeah. Well, you know, if you're offended, I'm going to be defend, de- defending myself. That's a really good
1: point. Um so any anyway, of those are like I said a little bit flying by the seat of my pants on that one. Um yeah. And it's really sort kind of me sharing with you in a, in a somewhat unvetted way, some thoughts that I've had, had about that. Great, um, great. Okay. So to get back to the question you were asking before uh, about stuff to remember about language, I think, you know, the, 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 the number one thing that I would come back to is that we can't lose sight of the fact that language is always connected to power. We cannot disentangle language from power. Humans are always and everywhere negotiating power in one way or another. So, of course, power shows up in language. Sometimes it's obvious; more often, it's pretty subtle. This whole notion of sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. It's just a <laughs> cute little thing for kids to say. You know, might 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 feel empowered on the playground, uh, but it's not an accurate reflection of what language is and what language does. When we use language, we wield power. So if we care about using our power in ways that forward the goals of DEI, then we also have to care about using language in ways that forward the goals of DEI.
0: I couldn't have asked for a better ending statement. Thank you. Thank you Jason. I'm just going to leave that right there. <laughs> okay. And with that, how can, can how can people stay in touch with you and your work and work with you?
1: The easiest way is just I'm 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 kind of uh, old school Gen Xer, I right? The email is great. I'm jason at jasonpatton.com. Um you can visit my website at uh at jasonpatton.com as well. And um, there, there's there's episode notes, right? So if I give well, there's mm-hmm. also, there's, so mm-hmm. I do, I do independent kind of solo work through jasonpattent.com. And then I have a, a partner, a partnership called Bridge Labs with my uh, former UC Berkeley colleague, Lauren, Malone, Lauren Maloney Ignatius. That's bridgelabs.learnworlds.com. And that would be great if that could show up in the show notes as well.
0: And I know you're really expanding, uh, providing services and support to your leadership clients around content and around the power of language. So leaders who could use some executive coaching and uh, support, then you need to be contacting Jason. And, and he's, he's, he's the guy for you. Jason, thank you for your time, not only in sharing so much of yourself and what you've learned um, uh, in supporting us as communicators who are trying to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts and make them successful in our organizations, and change that stereotype and that assumption that you very clearly identified that we need to own, that the presumption is that corporate communications is performative. And it's up to us to change that stereotype, to change that that expectation, to change that experience on our audiences and instill more trust. That is our charge, that is our work. Thank you for your time for a part two. Maybe yeah. it'll be a part three, you never
1: know, Jason. We never know, but <laughs> so, first, first of all, Kim, you're welcome, and it is truly my honor and truly my pleasure. I so appreciate the chance to sit down with you and, and talk things through. As I shared with you before we came on, just the process of preparing for this got me thinking about a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of new stuff in, in deeper ways than I thought about it before, so it, it's hugely beneficial to me, too. And I just appreciate your partnership. I appreciate that, that you're out there. And I'll also say to your listeners as well, maybe, maybe I'm somebody to reach out to and talk to and I'd appreciate the conversation. <laughs> Kim, whoo, talk about valuable, incredibly important work. I hope that you will, if you're not a client of, of Kim's yet, that, that you'll become one soon, or at least look into it.
0: Thank you, Jason. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Okay, so what popped out to you from this conversation? And I mean, it may take a minute to process, but be sure not to brush off what you just heard. Look, you just need a partner to be with you through this experience and understand what to do next. So, I'm inviting you to set up a one-on-one strategy session. All you need to do is go to communicate like you give a damn the and you'll see the button there. The more conscious communicators in the world, the better the world. So thank you for listening and until next time, let's communicate like we give a damn.